This is Bonjour Chai, the DJ El Maghribi edition. I'm Avi Fangel in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we dive deep into the music of the Maghreb and hear about uh, its effect, its impact back then, how it evolved into today with Jewish Studies professor and musicologist Chris Silver. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. We are in the middle of Pesach right now. We're in the middle of Passover, the intermediate days, Chol HaMoed. We hope you really enjoyed the Great Canadian Seder, Part 2. We got a lot of response from it. People loved it. Uh, we hope you have a chance to listen to it. If you haven't yet, go and check it out. With the second days of Pesach, the fascinating thing uh, for me always is the Mimuna. Uh, I grew up in a half Sephardic, half Moroccan home, and we like to always focus a little bit on the Mimuna here at Bonjour Chai. It has a special place in my heart, in the heart of Canadians who are uh, Sephardic, which is a significant portion more than you see in many other countries for a variety of reasons, which we may get into later or not. So for this year, we decided to bring in uh, Chris Silver, who's a professor of Jewish studies at McGill University. He just completed a book that came out uh, several months ago called Recording History, Jews, Muslims, and Music Across 20th Century North Africa. Uh, and we thought that we would bring him in, talk about the book, talk about his work, and maybe play some music that might be appropriate for a Mimuna itself. Chris Silver, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thanks for having me. Hi, Avi. What is the Mimuna? From the perspective of the classic New York Ashkenazi Jew who has no idea, who's only heard of this a couple weeks ago. So everybody has their own way of defining it. In in, in the most basic terms, it's a party uh, that happens on the last night of Passover, meaning as we have transitioning from the matzah to the chametz, going back to our daily lives, there is a uh, party. People go to different homes. People go to people's houses. From house to house to house, there are specific foods. There are very specific foods that we have for the Mimuna, not that we didn't have them the rest of the year, but we have them specifically at the Mimuna. Um, we wish people terho, which is you should have blessed. Things. Uh, and uh, Mimuna has the origin of the term and or of the event itself is probably, I could say, shrouded in mystery. Um, but ultimately, the, the majority of people will tell you that it refers to Leil HaEmuna, right? The evening of uh, belief, the evening of, uh, of faith. And uh, it's a night when we transition from Passover, which is a holiday of faith, and we bring it, the faith, to the rest of the year that we are, have faith that there might be an ultimate redemption, that the Messiah is going to come, and uh, it's an excuse to have a party still. How does that sound? Uh, that sounds great. That's right on the money. I think, I think you got it. It's, it's communal. It, it ends Passover. It sort of ushers in this new time. Mm -hmm. And it's imbued, I think, with all the symbolism that you alluded to, but also sort of the arrangement of the Mimuna table uh, as well with sort of uh, symbolic foods, uh, symbolic numbers as well. So five mm -hmm. uh, looms quite uh, large, five being representative of faith, belief, luck, like the Hamsa. Mm -hmm. um, and in decades past, there was also a time in which uh, Jews and Muslims uh, came together mm -hmm. as well. So sort of the preparation for 
Mimuna require the participation of uh, Muslims uh, as well. And even in the not so distant past, you could still see that in places like Casablanca, um, uh, Muslims uh, selling certain uh, goods and items that would adorn the Mimuna table uh, just uh, before the end of, of Passover. Sure. So meaning that you wouldn't be able, for example, like, you know how Jews sell their chametz um, before, uh, you know, Passover begins because they don't want to own it. Um, but there are many people that want the Mimuna to be prepared uh, in advance. And so they'll have their non-Jewish neighbors often there to help. Uh, there's a certain amount of trust that it's theirs. And then after the end of the holiday, they'll buy it um, or they'll hire people to like help set it up. Um, my favorite, really interesting example of this is if you go to uh, IGA in Cote St. Luke right now, uh, they're selling frozen mofletta. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, mofletta is the pancake, the crepes almost, that uh, is very, very traditional to be served at the Mimuna celebration and they're they're kind of time consuming to make they require a little bit of uh, assistance and a little bit of work so you can buy like a pack of 20 or a pack of 50 or whatever it is of these mofletas which are definitely not kosher for passover but people will buy them before passover frozen put them in the freezer sell them to the non-jew mm-hmm. right and then right after passover have their mofletta ready to have a mimuna oh that's oh i i could go on about uh, food questions, but no, I'm going to change gear. And I'm going to ask Professor Silver about what is your sort of professional background? Um, where are you in the academic world? Like, what, what do you do? And uh, how did you get interested in the topic of North African Jews? When I was an undergraduate, um, I had um, an honors thesis advisor who is a specialist of uh, Moroccan history and Moroccan Jewish history named Emily Gottreich that was at Berkeley. And um, she sort of, you know, opened my eyes and ears to this world that I I didn't grow up with and and didn't know uh, that well. And it's sort of that moment in in which I began a a journey and like, you know, an academic journey, but also sort of like a a personal uh, journey, because this is um, obviously this is this has become my work. But it's also something that sort of animates me in the day to day. And it it really sort of uh, drives me as well. And so I ended up spending some months in in Morocco in the early 2000s working on my Moroccan Arabic. I was really sort of uh, fired up um, uh, about this subject matter, given that it was so it was so rich. Right. This was one of the largest uh, Jewish communities in the uh, Islamic and Arab world in Arab worlds in the 20th century. Uh, quarter million people, 250,000 um, Urban and rural, multilingual, um, sort of found uh, in in every uh, uh, Moroccan space uh, possible, often overrepresented in certain industries in sort of like a really fascinating uh, way. And we'll, we'll get to sort of what I, what I looked at in particular in, in a moment. And then we can cut to uh, 2009. And I was also in Morocco again, uh, not in graduate school, um, just sort of in the working world, taking a, a trip to, to Morocco. I found myself in Casablanca and um, 
I happened upon a record store there, an actual record store, not a store that sold uh, CDs or MP3s or wherever we are now in sort of the, the digital uh, landscape, but actual records. And that in and of itself was fascinating. And it was it was like walking into uh, a time capsule, right? Because like all of the stock was sort of old and new. Uh, it was stock from decades ago, uh, but the, the music itself was uh, pristine. Uh, Dead stock. Dead stock, exactly. For those who know, dead stock. Um, And so um, I asked the proprietor to give me a sonic tour of uh, of his store with the promise that, of course, I would buy some things. Uh, And so then he started dropping the needle on uh, record after record uh, that just sort of uh, filled this incredible space on on these uh, incredible speakers. And after sort of every other record that was played, he would almost... And it wasn't quite a whisper, but sort of like I feel like history often wor- works uh, with uh, with the whisper as a start. He would mention that the artist we just listened to was Jewish. Uh, and I was intrigued by that historical whisper, that potential phenomenon. And so I bought um, uh, a small uh, stack of records and I... I'm sort of going to cut something short here, but I realized that there was much more to this history than that small stack uh, of records. Uh, And so uh, I wanted to sort of come get to arrive at an understanding of how this happened, that so many uh, Jews uh, were um, basically pioneered uh, Arab music in the 20th century. Um, I was interested not only in questions of the um, the classical high art uh, musical tradition known as Andalusian music, uh, which so often is is the focus of the conversation and also the scholarship, um, but I sort of wanted to know what real everyday people listen to uh, as well, uh, and so. Uh, with that sort of driving question or set of questions about sort of, you know, why and how Jews, uh, what did this place once uh, sound like and how did all of this happen? Um, I <laughs> returned to, to school uh, and started my PhD. And, you know, I was fortunate enough that um, I had mentors that believed in this work. Um, because it's very untraditional. Uh, I have a PhD in history and my uh, primary source material were century old records, uh, shellac records spinning at 78 rotations per, per That's minute. That's so cool. Uh, that were what I had also been told along the way is that they were gone, that they were impossible to find, uh, destroyed, discarded, abandoned, uh, and enough uh, people believed in me and said you can do it and i and i ended up believing that it was possible and you know here we are some years later not only is there a book but i have now an archive of hundreds of records from uh, a century ago or so that I endeavor to make available to a wider public. Mm -hmm. So another thing that's all so fascinating. Um, I was just thinking that there's really not that much knowledge in the Anglophone Jewish world of um, what you're talking about. And I was wondering, I mean, are you do you feel like you're bringing this um, not just the knowledge of this specific um, musical history, but really just like 
I, I wonder, I mean, are there people saying, wow, there there were and are North African Jews? Like how much of a, how, how ignorant is the typical um, <laughs> Anglo-Jew to this um, whole history and world? What I'm interested in is that many of us um, are quite fascinated by sort of the relationship of Jews and music or Jews to music. And what I endeavored to do when thinking about sort of, you know, bringing this to um, the, the Anglophone uh, world is that if we're going to be thinking about Jews and music, we really should be thinking about it uh, globally. Uh, and so it's not only a North American story. It's not only a, a European story. It's also a North African story. And it's also a, a Middle Eastern story. And those from these communities know that quite well. And so, again, to bring it uh, here to, to Montreal, you know, um, there's of an obvious association uh, of this city with Leonard Cohen. Uh, it should also be closely associated with Samuel Maghrebi. Uh, Samuel Maghrebi was um, a Moroccan artist. He was also a Moroccan Jew, but he was a Moroccan artist of few equals at mid 20th century. It was sort of the biggest thing in Morocco uh, in his uh, time, and not only in Morocco, in Algeria uh, as well, uh, in metropolitan France as well. And then he arrives here uh, in Montreal with his family in the late 1960s, where he becomes, um, he, he transitions, transforms um, from sort of this in some ways, the secular persona into the sacred uh, persona. He becomes the chazan at the Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, he synagogue. was he was the chazan at my parents' wedding. There you go. Uh, and so, you know, for um, many Jews around the world, we can speak about Jews for a second. It, many Jews around the world, Samuel Maghrebi is is not only a household uh, name, but he was sort of a, he's a part of their uh, family history and and soundtrack. And so again, to come back to this question of you know if we're interested in uh, Jews and music and and uh, the, the the conversations around um, those intersecting worlds, then we should pay attention to the entirety uh, of um, of of this subject matter and and recognize that um, there. Just here in Montreal alone, there were many important uh, voices that emanated from uh, from from different uh, sectors and, and and quarters, and then also to think about sort of the larger impact of, of Samuel Maghrebi, you know, his voice can still be heard throughout North Africa, right? So in a place where there uh, are are few Jews left. His music of mid twentieth century, um, in the same way that it uh, it, it animated uh, Avi's parents' wedding, it continues to animate Moroccan weddings. And our car trips, and yeah, you know, my I, I still remember the dozens of cassettes, you know, that my mom had that were just simply labeled Sammy. Exactly. Right. Or yeah, exactly. I mean, there was also Haim Luke yeah, and yeah, Bakashot yeah. and just general ones. But yeah. I just remember that all I had to say was Sammy. And those were the cassettes that we had on the car rides. They were scratchy. They were fifth generation dubbed already. Right. Um, I hated them for so long <laughs> because it didn't make sense to me. I wanted pop. I wanted something you know fresh and I didn't want something so scratchy and old. Um, but I remember in my 20s, mm. like rediscovering this mm. and realizing that this was actually something valuable. Not, that, not just that it was part of my heritage. It was actually like interesting on its own. Uh, I think it started when I started hearing Andalusian mm. uh, orchestras from Israel that were well recorded, the ones with, um, you know, Emil Zrehan and all of these others that were um, 
doing this again in the 20th in late 20th early 21st century and saying there's a there's a wide repertoire of this stuff and they started putting out cds of it and i would start finding them and it was interesting to me i i remember going to i think to the last concert of sami al-maghribi at the utremont theater wow um and nobody knew it was the last one but he was already getting on in years and uh you know that was interesting to me Mm -hmm. and as i moved to the states i started uh before i came back it was like oh i'm going to go and find this music because because it's interesting yeah 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 yeah. no it's so you know phoebe for all of those reasons you know this is a story um that that there are people in the community who've been who've been telling the story for a long uh, time and it continues uh, uh, to need to be told to be uh, amplified um and so you know uh, one thing i can add is that obviously the book i wrote um was in, was in English, um, but we're now working on translating the book into a number of languages, including into Arabic, um, because it's an important uh, story, Semil Maghrabi story, but also the role played by Jews in sort of uh, crafting the historical soundtrack for North Africa for much of the 20th century. Um, that is a story that should be made available uh, in the Arabic language as well. So I'm, I'm quite cognizant of sort of the... Um, the linguistic question, and I'm hoping to sort of diffuse this uh, story and and um, and make it known as widely as possible. I think that's that's really great. Um, so maybe uh, the art gallery of Ontario next up should be, you know, like, right. You well, know? there have been exhibits. Um, have the Jewish Museum okay. of Montreal put on an exhibit of Samuel Magribi's life. Um, I remember one year for Nuit Blanche, yeah, uh, right. the, the overnight, you know, that they do mm-hmm. an all-night uh, mm-hmm. festival uh, throughout the city. And yep. they put on an exhibit with music, with installations, with um, visuals. Um, so there have been, you know, stuff. There's a foundation, uh, Yolanda Amzalag, his daughter, uh, who I'm friends with, uh, who gave us the music from Samuel Magribi that we used for the Great Canadian Seder. Um has a foundation devoted to preserving his memory and his legacy. Um, so, so they're there. It's, you know, yeah, it's I, I, pockets. Yeah, I can say the, um, the Nuit Blanche event of a few years ago, um, uh, in collaboration with the, uh, Museum of Jewish Montreal, uh, Zev Moses, uh, Jessica Rhoda, who I know you had on the podcast or on, on the on the magazine, uh, Stephanie Schwartz, uh, and of course uh, the sort of intrepid Yolande Amzalag. Uh, you know, there, this story can has resonated for a long time and continues to resonate, and there are many of us working in collaboration to make sure that, um, again, it's sort of disseminated as widely as possible. And if I can say uh, a note of praise for Yolande Amzalag, so this is the youngest daughter of, of Samuel Maghrabi, um, she is an archivist of this history, the likes of which I have never seen before. Um, and so, you know, she operates a foundation uh, in her her father's name, which is committed to his legacy, but also in sort of, again, like the the most expansive perspective possible. So, you know, she um, gathers people around her, Jews and Muslims who come together for uh, this music, who come uh, together around the table to to sing this music, to sort of to to speak its message uh, in uh, various public spaces. It's really, really powerful. 
And, you know, the one of the, the questions that I alluded to earlier in terms of like, how does one do research on uh, music of a century ago and in another place? Because there is a perception of, of music as um, ephemeral, that it's sort of it, it's it as soon as it's out in the world, it sort of we, we lose its trace or sort of its physical existence uh, is difficult to, to track down. And that's something that sort of it sometimes burdens the study of music history, right? It's, it's not necessarily archived or um, mu- the job of a musician is quite difficult. So they're not thinking about, well, I need to keep all of my material or my concert posters or my lyrics or all of my recordings and things like that. <laughs> but so one Samuel Maghrabi was a, a league apart uh, in this way. You can see sort of his entrepreneurial spirit from the moment that he decided he was going to be an artist, he kept everything, everything. And so this is from 1948, sort of his debut moving, uh, moving forward. And his daughter, Yolande, has um, uh, also kept everything. So despite great odds, the difficulty, the sort of competition for space and all of our uh, homes. Um, and what that has meant is that uh, we can, again, sort of amplify his voice, uh, look into sort of what, not just how incredible his music is, but sort of like what he meant in real time. And that's what I was after uh, in, in this book, you know, um, not just, uh, again, the quality of his voice or his uh, fidelity to the Andalusian music, um, but what impact did his music have on everyday uh, Moroccan Jews and, and Muslims? And it was quite considerable. And my work is indebted to those who have um, uh, preserved this history for so long. So whether it's um, obvious parents who kept those cassettes and sort of kept uh, my mother, their, uh, my father had nothing to do with it. Okay, Super sorry. Ashkenazi, yeah. Park and Laurier. Okay, okay, got it. <laughs> He's more Leonard Cohen than Sammy Alberg. Okay. <laughs> um, but it, so your mother then is part of this story sure. where, you know, it's so easy to get rid of and so difficult to hold on, especially when it sounds like you've got um, fighting kids in the backseat of the car who sure. don't want to listen to this music. It sounds, like, it sounds like the answer to pr- being a hoarder is professional success. <laughs> it's the only oh. difference between between a hoarder and an archivist <laughs> is whether you've succeeded. <laughs> but curated, curated as well. Sure. And so, you know, like Sammy's archive is so well curated um, that uh, it enables us to tell the sort of the nuance of the story uh, through my book and through the work of the foundation uh, and, and here on this podcast. So how much of the work that you, how much of the reason why you came to Montreal is related to the fact that he was from here or he was here and there was so much music, not just from him, but from the rest of the community available to you? Uh, it was certainly, well, let me say this. You know, I know how academic, academic postings academic, work. Academic, you know, I, we are both graduate yeah, 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 students. Yeah, no. uh, we are both graduates of various graduate exactly. institutions. And so uh, I liken um, the academic job market to professional sports, right? There's sure. so many teams and there's only so many positions and you can't play every uh, position. Uh, I'm not I'm not saying I'm an elite athlete, but <laughs> an elite uh, academic. <laughs> but um, uh, the fact that uh, I had the opportunity to come here uh, to Montreal with uh, the the one of the richest uh, um, 
Moroccan Jewish histories and communities uh, in the globe was certainly a, a draw. Uh, and it continues to sort of drive my work. And I get to see that with my students as well. In other words, um, I, I, I teach, you know, uh, classes on the long history of Jewish life in the Islamic world or uh, the Jewish-Muslim relationship in the modern period. And I have quite a few students who come from the Moroccan Jewish community who end up writing these incredible research papers on their family histories. And the materials they're working with are their family papers, uh, photos, uh, documents, uh, interviews, and things like that. And so, you know, what uh, what we already know is sort of Montreal is, is a hub of uh, Moroccan Jewish history. And I also think it can be a hub for Moroccan Jewish scholarship or scholarship on the Moroccan Jewish community. Very neat. Amazing. Um, I was wondering if we can get into some music actually like yeah. play some uh songs some clips um maybe something that might be uh the type of music you'd hear at a festification like a mimuna uh, maybe we'll create our own little mini mimuna for bonjour chai um once you get us started with a clip and uh we can talk about it sure so the first thing i'm bringing to you uh is one of samuel maghrabi's uh, earliest recordings um so this is for the pate label uh pate understood samuel maghrabi to be the future of their uh arab catalog as they put it uh in north africa and so for those of us who grew up with samuel maghrabi here in, in montreal i wanted to bring something that was going to be uh, a departure Uh, and so here he's um, covering uh, a Cuban uh, song of uh, sort of early, mid-20th century uh, called Luna Lunera. Uh, and he sings it mostly in uh, Moroccan Arabic, but also sings in Spanish at the end as well. Uh, and so we can take a listen to that now. Luna Lunera, Tishaba, Wasghira, Ismakaziz Aliya, Fifum, Mehla, Mathmira. بربي عليك يا قميرة لا تخمم ولا تحير جي عندي العميرة واللي صار يصير uh, what strikes me first uh, about this song is that you hear the very much an Andalusian orchestra sound, um, but playing something that is very Latin. Um, and it's not like trying to be fusion, but it but it is right. There's so many fusion attempts, you know, the amount of times I've seen, you know, Salsa Celtica or Mozart in Egypt um, and all of these like attempts at fusing to, you know, uh, miles from India, like doing sketches of Spain, but 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 with Indian classical music musicians. I, I can think of so many, um, you know, projects that are like this. This is just an Andalusian orchestra playing Latin music. Luna Lunera anti shabba wus ismak aziz aliya fikum mehla mantmira Rubi alik ya qmira la tkhammim wa la tkhir Aji andi yalla amira willi sari sir Luna Lunera shabba wus gira ismak aziz aliya fikum mehla mantmira Shalti fi qalbi jmira wa khalli dini mamhoon Khalli ti aqli bhaira bhaaduk al-ayun what these musicians are exposed to is is many worlds, right? So um, s there is the Andalusian bass, uh, 
um, which these musicians, his accompanying musicians, were, were all Jewish. Um, they would have heard uh, in many spaces, including in, in the synagogue, right? That the, the sort of Andalusian uh, sounds, this sort of, this classical repertoire that we, we referenced uh, earlier. Uh, but of course, they're also exposed to sort of uh, French chanson. They're exposed to Latin music. They're exposed to uh, all manner of you know big band swing jazz and from uh quite early in the 20th century you can hear the influences of the globe in the music of morocco or algeria or or tunisia or uh, or whatever it is um and Semi, in particular, at the beginning of his career, is is really experimenting uh, with um, either Latin music or big ba- big band or swing, um, and so it's something that that I gravitate toward because it helps define the beginning of his career, and it's so different from later phases of his uh, career uh, as well. It's much more popular, um, and it's the music again we. We know this from sort of different types of um, uh, archival materials that people were really sort of coming together uh, around. And that's why I wanted to sort of highlight it, spotlight it, because it it often isn't in um, uh, the narrative, right? The sort of the uh, a standard history of uh, Moroccan music at at mid 20th century or North African music uh, in 20th century is uh, not necessarily going to pay attention to the popular um, because there's there's uh, especially in sort of academic circles, there's a, there's a pushback to the popular, and yet this is the music that people are um, buying in droves, turning out to in concerts by uh, the thousands, and which also uh, is of concern to the colonial authorities who now see all of these Moroccans coming together in various uh, venues um, in large numbers at this moment when um, uh, Morocco in the 1950s, for example, seems to be on the march to independence. Uh, and so this music does a lot of things, and that's why I'm, I'm so interested in it. Very cool. My only cultural reference would be for music of that era and for, is like, I Love Lucy... Um, when Ricky <laughs> performs at the yeah. nightclub. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. that might be the sort of connection that somebody not versed in the... I mean, I'm also interested in the, like, the Cremieux decree and all of that, but, like, my sort right. of musical reference would be more, um, yeah, Ricky Ricardo, big fan. Of of that of that yeah. period, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've got... I mean, you've also got tons of, like, incredible jazz music uh, yes. at that time, um, sort of, like, the emerging sounds of rock and roll Mm -hmm. um and so it's it's a really i mean it's a really important um uh time and in the north african context i mean you know for the you know this is um i don't know this is sort of the anti-algorithm we're just going to introduce people to some music here that that, that perhaps they don't know and you know they can begin to think about it Mm -hmm. and can explore it um including through my online archive uh um to get a sense of you know what a different time and a different uh place uh sounded like Mm -hmm. um but uh 
Moroccan music is changing in the 1950s, and part of that change is driven by Samuel Maghrabi, who, as Avi pointed out, is bringing in um, sounds of elsewhere and instruments of elsewhere as well. So uh, a guitar, for example, makes its uh, way in uh, to Moroccan music, uh, um, uh, clarinet, saxophone, all sorts of um, sort of non-traditional instruments. Uh, eventually, we'll get the electric guitar. Uh, uh, are going to change the way that this place uh, sounds, and it's driven by by people like Samuel Mogherini. Cool. What else do you have uh, next? Um, the next thing I, I thought I would play was uh, another um, uh, Moroccan Jewish artist, uh, slightly younger uh, than than Sammy. Um, uh, uh, someone who also later in his life becomes a chazan, who becomes a cantor, Joe Amar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I wanted to do was bring some of his recordings uh, from Morocco. Uh, so this is before he arrives in, in Israel in, in 1956, also the year uh, of uh, Moroccan independence. Uh, Joe Amar recorded for the Phillips label uh, in Morocco, uh, mostly in Arabic, a little bit in, in Hebrew uh, as well. Um, for those who know uh, Joe Amar, um, uh, you're going to hear his sort of iconic uh, voice, uh, but this is going to be a departure in part because he's introduced here not just as Joe Amar, but as Joe Amar El Maghrabi, so Joe Amar the Moroccan. <laughs> So you get like accordion here also. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that classic Joe Mar voice, that high, reedy, uh, nasally voice, is still very present early on in his career. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's, 20, he's 26 yeah. uh, at the time of recording. Uh, he's moving around Morocco at this place. He's teaching in um, the eastern city of, of, of Wujda. He comes from just south of, of Casablanca. He's in Casablanca as well. He's with um, uh, the great uh, Moroccan rabbi David Buzaglo mm-hmm. uh, performing Bakashot uh, sure. with him. Uh, and he records for this major label before uh, he departs uh, for sort of for uh Marseille than than uh than Israel. Um but yeah his earliest recordings are in Arabic and it's it's an important part of his career. I am not sure if you're aware, but in, towards the very end of his career in the late nineties, um he almost almost broke through with the Ashkenazi Haredi crowd. Um, there, there was these series of concerts every year uh, by an organization called HASC, the Hebrew Academy for Special Children. It was a, it was a school and a, a camp devoted to uh, kids with special needs. And their major fundraiser uh, before this was a thing was to have these concerts uh, at like every Fisher Hall with everybody who was anybody in the Haredi music world. So Avraham Fried and Mordechai Ben David. Uh, I, I know those, those names mean nothing to you, Phoebe, but this was like, imagine saying, right, you're going to have a concert and it's going to be 
you know, Leonard Cohen and Taylor Swift and Celine Dion and Elton John, and they're all going to perform in one night. I know, right? I do know all of Avery Fisher Hall. The, this this reference, which has now yes. been renamed yes. to David Geffen Hall. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Uh, I should have known it's, that. It's another but... example of the Jews colonizing, you know, spaces. But but the Upper um, West Side. I mean, it, it's it's yeah. ours. Um, and they would, um, and for the first couple, for the the second one, I believe, and maybe there was more, I don't remember, but I know for sure that one of those years they brought in Joe Amar mm. and he sang Barcelona, yeah, which was yeah. his big hit. And he sang a couple of other tunes and they were like, well, if we're going to have the spectrum of great Jewish musicians, we should have, you know, this guy. Um, and it didn't quite, you know, cross over fully, but, mm. uh, but he was definitely in the world of, uh, the Haredi world for a little bit. Yeah. And I mean, he, he recorded in Yiddish as well. Sure. And, uh, and he wasn't the only one. There's a, one of the most important uh, Algerian artists, Algerian Jewish artists of the 20th century, Salim Helali, um, uh, in the late 60s or early 70s, I'm forgetting right now, but recorded a version of Mayidish Mama uh, mm-hmm. in Yiddish and in, and in Arabic, uh, which is incredible. Well, as late as the late 90s, early 2000s, again, uh, Cantor Aaron Bensusan in Toronto uh, who was a chazan at an Ashkenazi congregation, but came from a Sephardic background, uh, recorded in in Judeo-Arabic, in Yiddish, and can, uh, classic cantorial pieces. He had various albums out, but he was recording across multiple uh, genres as well. So that's, uh, you know, very interesting to see that also. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to the talent of these people. And, you know, like another reason why we need to uh, focus on them, their lives, their trajectories, their impact. I mean, these were people who knew in some, in, in many cases, sort of the, a, a global Jewish repertoire um, and and could perform it. In some ways, it's sometimes you can see it the other way around, that it speaks to the uh, the normative nature of, of Ashkenazi and Yiddish music, that even if you're a Sephardic artist, you really can't make it unless you add some Yiddish music into your, your repertoire. I, I agree, but also you see these things in the Moroccan repertoire, for example, that are emanating from Egypt, for example. So it's sort of like another way sure. to think about it that um, Samuel Maghrabi, for example, was uh, well-versed in sort of all of these things, plus he knew Um Kaltum. Sure. Uh, also. Well, you, so, can't, you can't know music and not know Um Kaltum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyways, um, what are some of the uh, any any really like uh, party music that uh, would show up maybe at a mimuna or at a henna or at a wedding? Uh, what what types of music was being played at that time? Because I know what the music is like now, and we can get into that in a minute. But maybe play some examples of uh, uh, a couple of tracks of stuff that would be uh, party music. One uh, one classic of um, sort of the the, the henna uh, is. Um, a song that uh, uh, Salim Halali, the Algerian Jewish artist, uh, helped popularize called uh, Habibi Diali. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my love, where, where is he or where is she? Uh, a song that was later covered by groups like Manu Chao and, and, mm-hmm. and many others uh, as well. 
And so what I did, again, I don't know if this is exactly party music, but this is um, sort of the earliest iterations uh, of the song. I brought two different versions. You're going to hear that uh, these emanate from very well-loved records. So there are many scratches and imperfections uh, and the like. Um, uh, but this was among the most popular songs of uh, 1950s Morocco and Algeria. Ali, Ali, Habibi, Diari, Fein, Hua. And I brought two versions. Uh, the first is by uh, Albert Suisa, um, a Moroccan Jewish artist um, who was incredibly popular at mid 20th century. And then uh, sort of the... the um, uh, among the most important uh, female artists of uh, Morocco in from the 30s uh, through the early 60s, uh, Zohar al-Fasiya. Um, um, and so we'll listen to two versions of that and I'll, and I'll play you just a second uh, of them now. <laughs> Okay, so I'll give you the Zohar al-Fasiya version uh, as well, also a well-loved record. What are the contemporary versions that people are playing now at Henna's? Because it's definitely way different than this. Do you know any of the uh, tracks that are... Saying yeah. the one, if you go to a Moroccan Henna now, you're hearing this song, but like, you yeah. know, these the super amped up versions. Yeah, we, I can think of that, like, you know... Um, Sfatayim. Yeah, what's fascinating about those three different tracks is how we have like the progression of like clearly the origin of this song it's it's an upbeat song but it seems almost mid-tempo by the standards of the same track played contemporarily for what they play at henna's nowadays um and things get like really like amped up they really jump into a, a very fascinating like different direction and that's because the exposure to current dance music i'm guessing has some real um effect on the music that's played now what's the relationship between uh, contemporary like Moroccans that are not octogenarians, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, younger Moroccans, uh, younger Sephardim in general, and this kind of music. And uh, are they doing any interesting things? Are they going back to tradition? Um, what's happening in the culture with regards to this music? I mean, you see, I, I guess we're in a moment of revival that I'm sure I'm sure many of your listeners are aware of. Where um, if you look at the Israeli context, for example, um, there are a great number of um, uh, Moroccan performers, performers of Moroccan descent who are um, not just interpreting this older music, but sort of making it totally their own and, and new. So Netel Kayam and Amit Haikohen are, um, are two performers who perform together, um, who immediately uh, come to mind, who um, are sort of 
expressing themselves and their identity and their positionality um, first through the discovery of uh, this older repertoire. And now they're also sort of branching out on their own and writing uh, their own music uh, in Moroccan Arabic Mm -hmm. um, and and doing that uh, in in our current moment. Uh, And there's many other um, iterations uh, of this phenomenon again uh, in in Israel um, uh, uh, in which sort of um, something has been awakened rediscovered uh, but also making it their own right it's it's not it's not just nostalgia I, I suppose is what I would say it's um, it's a way to understand themselves and their current uh, moment and, and also to look forward sort of to to use the past in, in order to envision a, p- a possible future and so um, we're witnessing a return uh, to this to this period in many ways but of course with a with a, a very contemporary twist. So, so this music is being used in interesting ways by young Sephardim. Um, my sense also, though, is that a lot of the young Sephardim living today are not necessarily, they're listening to this maybe on the side, but when they're going out to, to enjoy themselves for an evening, if they think of Jewish music or Mizrahi music, they're playing contemporary Israeli music more than anything else. Uh, the question of sort of like, what are people listening to today is quite difficult and, and vexed. Um, so no, I don't think um, when someone's trying to, <laughs> you know, get pumped up in the car that they're playing uh, what we listen to. Um, uh, but what I am saying is in terms of some very creative artists who are on the scene right now, um, there's a cognizance of this history and there's an attempt to, to reinterpret it um, and, and and make it their own uh, as well. There's a sense that um, this is uh, part of an important legacy um, and it and it 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 can't be silenced any longer. It needs to be uh, out there. So you know, in terms of you know, we're we're in a moment that we all know well. We're sort of you know the music is at a crossroads. The music industry is at a crossroads. Uh, you know, the world is sort of um, captive to Spotify and the algorithm, and even like the act of discovery becomes that much more difficult. Um, and um, and so again, sort of what people listen to uh, now becomes a very complicated question. Um, but what I can say is we have many incredible artists that are rediscovering this music and themselves through it in Israel, but also in Morocco as well. You have Moroccan Muslims who are reinterpreting this music, um, uh, bringing it back, uh, working it into their repertoire, of course, as they're doing totally different things, pushing the envelope in other ways. Um, And so, you know, I think think, um, a reinvestment in this music doesn't mean that it's all going to sort of head in that direction, right? There are global trends that are inescapable, um, but it does mean that you're going to start to be able to hear it in in more uh, spaces. Um, so whether that's you know uh, Israel or um, the festival stage uh, in uh, Morocco, or you know I just. Uh, partnered on an event with the Siegel Center here in which um, a young uh, Moroccan Jewish artist uh, from Brooklyn, uh, Laurel Kaslasi, um, was just here 
Uh, and uh, we had some 60 people show up of very different backgrounds uh, to sing alternately in, in Hebrew and in Arabic. Um, not this repertoire per se, but uh, the repertoire related to um, uh, Al-Andalus, Bakashot, uh, liturgical and paraliturgical music. And so I think there's interest. I think there's interest. Amazing. Uh, before I close up, Phoebe, are there any last questions that you wanted to get to? Well, it's just it's it's interesting to me just because this is not at all my family background, but learning about it and finding it fascinating and really thinking like just about how little I knew about this just growing up, you know, like like a, my grandmother um, was an Ashkenazi Montreal Jew. So in theory, that might have meant that I knew about this. But because she moved to the States, you know, as a young adult, like I just didn't know about any of this. Right. Yeah. No, but even, I mean, it's still, Avi, I don't know what your thought is, but like, it's still like often two solitudes here, even within the Jewish community. Like, even if you had grown up here, it doesn't mean that you would know this story at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's fascinating that you say that because, you know, I did grow up that with, you know, with Ashkenazim and Sephardim, not really mixing as much. There is a lot more of that, um, you know, intercommunal attachment. I, I look at my kids' school and I would say probably three quarters of the families have one Moroccan parent and one Ashkenazi parent. Um, mostly Moroccan. It's it, because of Montreal. So I'm not going to say broadly Sephardic, but that is, you know, the case. Um, and it's fascinating how much overlap there is now within the communities. That being said, culturally, you don't have a lot of that overlap. So Ashkenazim will often find it exotic to get into Sephardic things like Sephardic food, and will go to the Sephardic caterers for their takeout sometimes and, you know, find, oh my God, that's amazing. They're not necessarily going to listen to the music as much. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that the Sephardim, because of the emphasis on popular music and dance and being upbeat, we'll listen to a lot more Ashkenazi artists. So if you go to a, a Moroccan Sephardic wedding, especially if it's a more uh, Haredi-inflected one, uh, you'll hear a lot of the Israeli music, but you'll hear a lot more Ashkenazi artists and musicians. So, so in that sense, the many, many Sephardic youth will know many Ashkenazi artists right. and musical artists, right. but you won't find that vice versa. So there, there is a lot of two solitudes, but there's a lot of like isolation piece. And right, it's right, interesting right. Um, to see what are the pieces that overlap and what are the pieces that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really fascinated by that. Well, Why don't yeah. you play us um, something uh, to, to bring us out, another little okay. festive bit? Can I play something that's uh, a different type of festive? It's just a recording sure, that I really please. like. Yeah. Uh, so it's not necessarily... Uh, Mimuna we'll get or, or otherwise, but I just love this um, this recording. Uh, it's Adon Olam, mm-hmm. um, so sort of a, a great culminating uh, piece. It's often uh, the last piece that you perform uh, or that you sing uh, uh, at any liturgy, at any service, right? At the end of an evening service and end of a morning service, you'll often sing Adon Olam um, in Shul. And so um, this is a, a version that's recorded in um, Marseille in, in the south of France uh, in the early 1950s by uh, a Moroccan Jew uh, coming from Morocco, uh, making uh, his way to Israel. Uh, it's uh, recorded with sort of a, an incredible label that was um, bringing in all of these migrants from, from different places. So uh, West Africans, North Africans, uh, Armenians, Turks, uh, Greeks. Um, and uh, the artist in question is, is uh, Judah Sabah. 
And I had the great fortune of um, connecting to his son, really, by like happenstance. Uh, Judas Abach recorded maybe uh, four sides in total. Um, so 12 minutes in total in the uh, early 1950s. And uh, a very talented artist, but they were really sort of uh, of um, uh, the sort of impromptu qualities is what I love here. And so what you're going to hear on this version of Adon Olam, again, recorded sort of mid-journey by uh, a Moroccan Jewish migrant, uh, is that uh, there's a lack of, of musical instruments uh, in the space. And so someone is accompanying Sabah uh, by playing the spoons. Someone picked up a few spoons, and you'll, you'll hear that here. How that very was... Cape Breton. <laughs> there That's you go. Good way to end it on a Canadian go. note. <laughs> of the recording industry in North Africa um, in part fueled this project. Um, the fact that thousands of individual titles were released over the course of the first half of the 20th century. Some of these records sold in the tens of thousands of copies, but all of this to say that there were hundreds of thousands of records um, uh, crossing borders uh, in North Africa, across North Africa, uh, with a great many of them by, by Jewish artists. Again, propels this story forward, uh, but also the fact of the diversity of this music, right? So we sort of uh, spoke about Andalusian music uh, and also popular music, but it was also a very, very much a multilingual affair. So uh, Samuel Maghrebi sang himself in multiple languages, but uh, uh, Arabic, of course, uh, was the language of the vast majority of the recordings, uh, but a great many uh, liturgical and paraliturgical uh, Hebrew language uh, repertoire was recorded uh, as well. And so um, I just wanted to point that out to give us a sense of sort of the vastness of the soundscape of a particular place in time. Chris Silver, uh, thank you so much for taking all this time with us. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for Chol Hamoed Pesach, the intermediate days of Passover. Our show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Phoebe Maltzbovi. Yeah.